for all that you have been teaching us through this study of how you created all that is, especially, Lord, how you're showing us just your glory and your magnificence and your power and your wisdom, that your intelligence just goes beyond what we can comprehend and how you created everything so perfectly and so minutely and so infinitively. There's just no end to the universe and there's no end to what men can see under a microscope. They're just constantly amazed at what they discover. And it should, it should prove to them that there is an intelligence, a designer behind everything. And I pray, Lord, that that's what we'll see as we continue through this study. As we look today at your creation of the fish and the fowl, those things that live in the waters and those things that live in the air above us, and just how magnificent your creation is and how diversified and how beautiful. And as we look at these things, may we just continue to praise you and lift you up and and worship you for the magnificent God that you are. And remember that you created all of this for us because you loved us so much that you wanted us to have a perfect environment and you you wanted to have fellowship with us. That's the part that really amazes us. But you wanted fellowship with us. And when you knew we would break that fellowship, you even had a plan how you would renew us to yourself through your son who gave his life so that we, again, could have fellowship with you and spend eternity with you. And so we thank you for sending Christ to die in our place for our sins. Lord, I ask now that you would help me to speak clearly and plainly and quickly and that you would keep us alert, uh, give our minds alertness so that we can... Take in all that you have for us in this lesson through the Holy Spirit, for we pray in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Well, all the necessities of life were in place on earth and in the universe by the time of the end of the fourth day. God saw everything so far that he had created, and he declared that it was what? Good. However, it was not yet very good as he would state at the end of day 6, if you look over at verse 31. Because it was not yet very good because the earth was still deficient in one area. It was void of any inhabitants. And we know that God formed the earth in order for it to be inhabited. It says in Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. The fifth and the sixth days of the unique creation week were to be entirely devoted to that final work of creation, the filling of the earth with living inhabitants. Now, as we consider then the creation of the fifth day, which is part one of our outline for today. This is described for us in chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. We are going to be looking at God's creation of the living water creatures and the living air creatures. Now, although I know that the categories are much broader than this, just for our outline purposes, I am going to be referring to the living water creatures as fish, although we know that not everything that lives in the water is fish. And I'm going to refer to the living um, air creatures as fowl. 
just so we have the two F's on the fifth day, you know, fifth fish and fowl, so you can remember it. Now, in our outline, we'll look at, first of all, the creation of the fifth day. God created fish and fowl, then God separated the fish and the fowl into kinds. God saw that the fish and fowl were good, and then God blessed the fish and the fowl. That's a new aspect to what we've been looking at, the blessing. And then, very briefly, we'll look at the conclusion of the fifth day in part two as we look at verse 23. So let's begin by looking at the text. You'll read with me, starting at verse 20. This is the sixth day. God says, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Once again, in fact, for the sixth time in the creation week, God spoke. God's word, as we have been finding out in this study, is unlimited power, isn't it? God's word can do absolutely anything. It can create the universe, it can create all the stars, it can create light, it can create water, it can create the other mysteries that we have all about us in our universe, which we cannot explain, and it can create life, which is what occurred on day five. Remember, day five, life. For the first time, you can remember that because five is the number of grace, and it's God's grace that gave life. Now, for the first time in the Bible, the word life does appear in verse 20. This life speaks of the life of consciousness, a life, life that can breathe, life that has animation, in other words, that can move about. So this is different than plant life, isn't it? Plants have life, yes, but they don't possess the life of animals. There's a difference in their living. Animals breathe. Animals have consciousness. Animals have animation. They can move. Now, it's interesting, therefore, to realize that the Hebrew word, and we've discussed this before, the Hebrew word for created, which is bara, B-A-R-A, now appears for only the second time in the creation week. The first appearance of this word was where? Right, back in verse 1 where we read, in the beginning, God created, God bara. B-A-R-A, the heaven and the earth. Bera involves the creation of something new, something from nothing, ex nihilo it's called, which is something only God can do. Man cannot create, he can make or form, but he cannot create something from nothing. On day one, God created from nothing what? Time, space, and matter. And then everything that he did on the rest of day one and then on days two, three, and four, merely involved taking that which he had already created, time, space, and matter, and rearranging it or forming it into something. However, now here on the fifth day, God again created something from nothing. And what he created was conscious life. 
it was not that the physical bodies of these water and air creatures, the fish and the fowl, it's not that their physical bodies were created, were not created from something which existed previously, because they were. They were created from the same matter that he began with in the beginning. But it was that their living spirits came from nothing else which was in pre-existence, except their life came from God, right? So that's the only other life that it came from was his pre-existent life. God, the eternal one who is life himself. In the original Hebrew, now of the first part of verse 20, God literally said this. He said, let the waters teem or swarm with the moving creature that hath life. The first introduction of animal life to this planet was not, as the evolutionists would tell us, it was not some tiny bit of protoplasm which just, you know, by chance happened to appear in response to some sort of electrical discharge over a primeval ocean, and uh, this is called spontaneous generation. This is not how life came about in this universe. Instead, at the moment of God's spoken words of day five, the waters of the earth suddenly, abundantly filled with swimming, swarming, moving creatures of every kind, of every size and shape. I mean, from tiny little microscopic little things to, to whales. That's not a whale, but up to whales. Or even dinosaur things that used to live in the water. Now, once again, we find then that the Bible's account of origins clashes head-on with the naturalists' theories of origins. As I've mentioned previously in some of our other studies, many of the world's scientists are materialists. Now, praise the Lord, not all of them. There are many creationist scientists, and I'm very thankful for them. And their number is growing. I think there's coming a day in the near future. That's why I'm all behind newspaper like this. I just feel that people need to be educated about the truth. Evolutionism is not truth. And we can prove it. And I have been showing you scientifically that it just doesn't, it doesn't work. I just think our people need to be educated. But materialists, remember, are those who suppose that everything in the universe can simply be explained in terms of interacting matter. They flatly deny the existence of anything supernatural, a supernatural creator. They deny the existence of a spiritual world. Spontaneous generation is the materialistic belief which was popularized back in the Middle Ages that living creatures can be produced spontaneously and just naturally from non-living substances. Now, those who first came up with this great idea, spontaneous generation, drew their conclusions, and you can't blame them because they didn't have the modern technology that we have today, but they would sit around and they would look at a banana getting ripe and they'd see fruit flies all over it. So they thought that the, that the banana, an inanimate object, was spontaneously giving birth to life. And then they would look at, I hate to bring this up, but they'd look at some pile of manure <laughs> and they would see maggots and things crawling on it. And so they'd think that that gave birth to life or bees coming out of a cow. 
and that's where they came up with this idea of spontaneous generation. However, spontaneous generation was disproved by a number of very careful researchers like Reddy in 1688, Spallanzani in 1780, and then including the, um, the famous French scientists and creationists. Whoops, got that in the wrong order. Here he is. You've all heard of him, Louis Pasteur. He was a creationist. He believed in the Bible account of creation, just like you and I. Pasteur provided the first scientific evidence that living things are not produced from non-living matter. He proved that when matter was pre-sterilized, that's where we get the word pasteurization is from his name, when things were sterilized and then sealed off from any possible biological contamination, that no life arose. You know, <laughs> no, no maggots, no fruit flies. Therefore, no spontaneous generation. Now, the studies then of Pasteur and the others established what is called the law of biogenesis. Bio, you know, life, genesis, beginnings. The law of the beginning of life, which is, here's the law, all right? This is the law. Life only comes from pre-existing life. Is that difficult? No, not very difficult. And life will only perpetuate its own kind. Does that agree with the scripture? Yes, no problem. It is quite a paradox, and this actually happens, but our children in school are first taught the greatness of the disproof of spontaneous generation by such famous men as Louis Pasteur. They're taught, taught that, you know, that there is no uh, spontaneous generation, and he proved it with learning how to sterilize things. They're taught that, and then they are told later on the fact, quote-unquote, the fact that spontaneous generation was actually the evolutionary mechanism by which life arose on our planet. That's what goes on in the school system. However, the law of biogenesis, unless, of course, they have a Christian teacher who tells them better, the law of biogenesis has no problem with uh, biblical creationism. It's not creationism's enemy because the Bible tells us that life did indeed spring from pre-existing life and that pre-existing life was the eternal God himself, who is life. Materialists believe that in spite of, you know, the evidence, they do believe, and I had something written there, but I don't remember what it was because it got absorbed again. But they do believe that life arose spontaneously somewhere in the earth's ancient water supply, you know, some prebiotic soup, which uh, contained no life whatsoever, not even a little amoeba, not even a bacteria, no life in this prebiotic water, simply minerals and chemicals needed for life by living things. Now, actually, in this one area, they are right. The materialists are right. Life did first arise spontaneously, where? In water that previously had no life whatsoever, except we happen to disagree about the way that life came about. We believe it came when God said, when God spoke the existence of all the creatures into it. 
Now, the first living creatures God created were those that do did live in the water. Although on the fifth day, we don't know for sure if he actually created the fish first and then the fowl. He may have just spoken. They all came about at the same time, which is probably what happened. You know, immediately at his word, the waters were filled and the air was filled with birds. But it is interesting that the evolutionists say that the very first life on earth was extremely simple, being sub-microscopic, you know, very, very tiny, single-celled creatures, and that whales, this is what the evolutionists would tell us, that whales did not, in fact, come along until millions of years later. When they finally, now here's what they would tell you, that whales finally evolved after millions of years from four-legged land mammals because you know a whale is a mammal he gives birth or she gives birth (laughs) i should get that right (laughs) she gives birth to her babies not through eggs like fish but just like we do because we're mammals well we're above the mammals but you know what i'm talking about all right so they say that whales evolved from four-legged land mammals, which themselves had taken millions of years to evolve from cold-blooded marine creatures. So what they're saying is that, um, first of all, there was a sea cell. You get that? I thought that was, that was mine. You're not even laughing. Sea cell, not a seashell, but a sea cell. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> which took millions of years, that little sea cell, to evolve into a cold-blooded marine animal. And then it took millions of years for that cold-blooded marine, meaning it lived in the water, to then evolve into a warm-blooded, four-legged land mammal. But then it took more millions of years for that four-legged land mammal to evolve back into the sea and lose his legs on the way to become a whale. That's what they would teach you. Well, contrary to all of that foolishness, God did it the easy way. He simply created whales on day one or day five and all the other sea creatures, great and tiny, all at once, complete and ready to reproduce after their own kind. Now, I think, as I was studying this, I think it's really amazing that God does absolutely, totally the opposite of what man would think and what man says. What does man say? Well, he says life came from a tiny microscopic little cell or amoeba or protoplasm or whatever they want to call it in the water. So what does God tell us the very first, the name of the very first living creature that he ever made? was great whales. I mean, the biggest thing that we can think of today, they, they get to be 100 feet long, some of these whales. So the total opposite of what man would say. God says the first thing, great whales. Now, the word for great whales in the Hebrew is tanin, T-A-N-N-I-N. And it can also be and also is translated elsewhere in the scripture as great sea monsters. And also as dragon. It's translated in the Bible as dragon. And this very well speaks probably of the very large dinosaurs which God placed both in the waters and in the air. There were flying dinosaurs and on land. He had all three types. So this word also doesn't just speak of whales, but it speaks of all the great sea monsters um, such as the dinosaur, the marine dinosaurs. And evolutionists, by the way, 
Who would teach and who do teach that dinosaurs lived millions and millions of years before men ever came on the scene? They are wrong. They are wrong. Not only do we find that marine-type dinosaurs were actually created a day before man, day five is a day before man, so these marine dinosaurs were in existence before man, while the land dinosaurs were created on the same day as man, but Job, the author of the first book to ever be written in the Bible, refers to both land and marine dinosaurs in his book. Did you know that? The land dinosaurs are called Leviathan. You also read about Leviathan in Psalm 104. And the, I'm sorry, the land is behemoth. And the marine dinosaurs are Leviathan. And you can read about them in the Bible. And it's not describing a hippopotamus or a crocodile, believe me. You read the descriptions. I've got the reference in your Bible. Uh, Job 40, verses 15 to 41, 34. Not your Bible, your notes. (laughs) Furthermore, numerous contemporaneous human footprints and dinosaur prints have been found in fossil records together, you know, human prints and dinosaur prints together. One case, I think there's even a a human print inside of the dinosaur print. They've been found in places all over, all over the world. New Mexico, Mexico, Arizona, Illinois, Missouri, Kentucky, other places all over the place. Furthermore, these have been very carefully evaluated and verified by reliable paleontologists. Paleontologists are those scientists who study fossils. And they're not, they cannot be dismissed as being frauds. They're not frauds. They're real. Also, I have an article here, and this isn't the first one I've ever read, but they have found dinosaur pictographs all over cave walls and canyon walls and pictures of dinosaurs um, scratched onto rocks and um, stone slabs and seashells. Now, who drew those pictures? Men. So men and dinosaurs lived at the same time. It's also interesting to know that uh, in 1925, a man by the name of Moore, M-O-O-R-E, just like our Tony Moore, (laughs) He discovered a um, a dinosaur which had been washed up on the the sea the um, the shore of Santa Cruz, California, 1925, and it looked very much like what it was called a plasiosaur. Also, in 1977, a Japanese fishing vessel. This is an actual photograph here. It didn't come out too good from the book, but in the book it shows much clearer that I took this copy from. A Japanese fishing ship snagged the body of a huge decaying sea monster. Now, what does it mean if it's decaying, still decaying, that it was alive very much recently or it had been, it'd be completely gone? <clears throat> um, and they snagged this decaying sea monster, which again resembled very much what was called a plasiosaur. And they found this 900 feet underwater near New Zealand. It has accurately been said that we actually know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the depths of our oceans. And so there there very well may be living marine dinosaurs yet today living at at the bottom of our oceans. And there are living dinosaurs today. Did you know that? There's the Commodore dragon. There is the Mona iguana. 
These are all left over from the dinosaur ages, dinosaur age. And there's the Galapagos tortoise. You've maybe even ridden one of those. I think I did once upon a time. Materialist scientists have been trying for years to prove their theory that life can arise spontaneously given the proper setting. They think that they can do this, that they can create life. Dr. Stanley Miller, this is an actual picture of that man, and Dr. Dr. Sidney Fox were two scientists who first attempted to produce life spontaneously by laboratory experiments. They designed this elaborate Pyrex apparatus, which you can see part of it here, into which they put all their necessary ingredients, such as water vapor, ammonia, nitrogen, hydrogen, methane, and methane. And they mixed those all together, and I don't know what they did with it, but they didn't get any life. So they said, well, something's missing. So they decided that what they needed to add was a bolt of energy, because they said, well, perhaps lightning struck this primordial water, and that's what generated life from this prebiotic soup. So through their mixture, these two men passed electric sparks in order to stimulate lightning strikes. Well, the result was that no life was produced. However, they were very excited because some amino acids were produced, which isn't really anything wonderful. Amino acids are compounds that are the simplest units out of which proteins can be assembled. We are made up of amino acids. Now, the Miller-Fox experiment did not prove that life could eventually arise spontaneously in some ancient water struck by lightning. Actually, you know, I was thinking about the fact, even if they could produce life, even then, you know what they would only really be proving? That it takes intelligence to produce life. It takes pre-existing life and intelligence to produce life. That's all they'd really be proving. But they weren't able to make to produce life anyway. The mixture of amino acids and other simple chemicals produced by their experiments is not at all sufficient for producing life. Not at all. That's putting, that's a vast understatement. Now I'm going to get a little technical here, but the main thing to understand is how impossible it is for men to produce life. All right? For one thing, all known life organisms use amino acids which are only of the left-handed orientation. All life only uses left-handed amino acids. Why? I don't know, but that's just the way it is. Now, an amino acid can be chemically either right-handed or left-handed in its orientation, but no known life, no known life can use any combination of some right-handed amino acids and some left-handed amino acids. Even one single little amino right-handed acid added to a whole chain of left-handed amino acids will destroy the entire chain. It won't even put up with one right-handed fellow. And when synthesized, whoops, I'm behind. There's my lightning. (laughs) Okay. Here's my little cell. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's where I want to be. Thank you. That's where I want to be. Here's our little cell. 
When synthesized, that means when man-made amino acids are produced in a laboratory, there is always, always a 50% mixture of right-handed amino acids and left-handed amino acids. And they can only be separated by very highly technical, intelligently controlled processes very tedious processes to get rid of all those right-handed amino acids. Yet even if this tremendous obstacle to producing life did not exist, they even have greater problems than this. This is minor. There are, for example, many reasons why the amino acids would disintegrate or never even form in the first place. Furthermore, life requires a whole lot more than just amino acids. You can't just have amino acids to produce life. One such necessity is proteins, and another is the very, very complex DNA code. Remember how we've talked about this a little bit already? One chemist has taken the time and the effort to figure the odds against amino acids ever combining to form the necessary proteins by undirected means, you know, just on their own, spontaneously. The probability is more than 10 to the 67th power to 1. That's 1 out of 10 with 67 zeros behind it. And that's even just having one small protein forming by time and chance in an ideal mixture of chemicals in an ideal atmosphere and giving it 1 billion years to produce itself. It's still 1 in 10 with 67 zeros after it. Now, mathematicians have said that if you have one chance in 10 with 50 zeros behind it, your possibility is zero. Zero. It will never happen if it only has 50 zeros. This one has 67 zeros. Dr. Harold Morowitz of Yale, Yale University, estimated another probability and that is of the smallest free-living thing duplicating itself. Now, it would require 239 individual protein molecules for life to reproduce itself. Dr. Morowitz calculated what the probability of even the first protein, we need 239, but just even the first protein molecule forming all of its amino acids into the left-handed kind, uh, the minimum number of amino acids in just one protein is 410. Okay, we need 239 proteins, but then we have to have, um, in each protein, we have to have 410 amino acids, and every amino acid has to all be of the left-handed orientation. All right? Now, the chance, this would be like flipping a coin 410 times and having it come up heads every single time. Now, the chances for that happening would be ten, 1 in 10 with 123 zeros after it. Okay, that would just be getting one amino, one protein. But even if this was to occur in one protein, it would then have to repeat, be repeated at least 238 more times because you need 239 proteins. So the chances are now 1 in 10 with 29,345 zeros behind it. The odds of a single protein forming by chance in Earth's entire history 
is 4,000 times greater than the total number of atoms in the entire universe. I mean, you don't have to understand everything I've said except one thing. It's impossible. Totally, totally impossible. And then, yet, I haven't finished. <laughs> I'm just talking about amino acids and proteins. Now you throw in there the additional necessity of the DNA molecule you know, coming about spontaneously. And that even adds more fantastic numbers to the odds against the possibility of life coming from natural substances. Even the DNA of a bacterium is very, very highly complex, containing some three million units of just one bacterium. And they're all lined up, you know, in precise and very meaningful, intelligent sequence. It's incredible. Many, many scientists have become totally convinced that cells containing such complex codes as the DNA and such intricate chemistry as is found in living organisms could never, ever have come into existence by pure, undirected chemistry. One such man, very famous, he is an evolutionist, his name is Sir Fred Hoyle, has stated that supposing the first cell originated by chance is like believing that, quote, a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747. <laughs> End of quote. Chemist Dr. John J. Greber said this, quote, that organic evolution could account for the complex forms of life in the past and the present has long since been abandoned by men who grasp the importance of the DNA genetic code, end of quote. Researcher and mathematician I.I. I. Cohen says this, quote, at the moment when the DNA system became understood, the debate between evolutionists and creationists should have come to a screeching halt. The implications of the DNA were obvious and clear. Mathematically speaking, based on probability concepts, there is no possibility that evolution was the mechanism that created the approximately six million species of plants and animals that we recognize today. End of quote. Now, I fill your notes with all kinds of additional quotes. These are just some of them. Some of them I quote from Darwin himself. Now, all we really need to do, actually, though, is look at some of the living creatures around us in our world, flying around us in the waters, on the land. Just look at some of them to gain some idea of their tremendous complexity. And I think that when we do this, we should, once again, just as when we look out at the starry sky, you know, at night and see its splendor and it, how it just gives glory to its creator and his handiwork, that when we look at the animals around us and the birds around us, that we should absolutely worship and praise the, the wonder and the intelligence and the wisdom of the one who created all of them. I mean, I don't know how anybody can look at a beautiful bluebird or a, a red cardinal or a blue jay or we raise peacocks to look. I mean, how can you look at those and not see a designer? But let's look at some of them. Um, 
Because we're talking about marine creatures and fowl, I'm going to limit this not to animals, but I'm going to be talking about fish and fowl. An incredible relationship, which is found in nature. Oh, I should have had that up while I was talking. Isn't he cute? I mean, even looking at a frog, a toad, (laughs) shows you God has a sense of humor, I think. (laughs) Looking at some of us, I know he has a sense of humor. (laughs) Me. All right. There is a relationship in nature which is called cleaning symbiosis. Large fish, which normally go about the waters, eating smaller fish and shrimp, will periodically need to have their teeth cleaned and their gills cleaned out and their mouths and their scales because they accumulate debris and parasites as they go around eating things. So a number of these fish, there's, for one example, the yellow-tailed goatfish, will stop in at their local dentist, or their cleaning station, I should call it, their local cleaning station. What they do is they go into this little cleaning station, and they open up their mouth, and they show their sharp teeth, and these little cleaner fish swim right on in. An example of a cleaner fish is an angelfish. They swim right past those sharp teeth, and they get busy cleaning away at all the debris. See, they're benefiting because they're eating the leftover. The leftovers is what they're doing. They're eating the leftovers. <laughs> now, once this, their little job is finished, once their task is complete, they swim right out, totally unharmed, and the larger fish goes on his way, very happy that now his teeth are clean and he won't get any cavities. <laughs> So everyone has benefited from this arrangement. But how, how in the world could such a wonderful arrangement have developed? Creationists state that this type of relationship could never, ever have evolved from mere chance. And trial and error, you know, evolutionary processes. Animal instincts for self-preservation would have definitely taken precedence over such an unnatural suicidal tendency on the part of the little fish. I mean, they would not have done that. And, you know, the first couple ones that did, if it was only evolution and not intelligent design, they would have perished, so the other ones would have said, well, that wasn't a good idea, let's not do that. (laughs) And also then the temptation on the part of the big fish to get a free meal would have taken precedence. So evolution itself, evolution has lots of reasons why natural enemies would not cooperate in helping each other out like this. So this special arrangement then can only speak of special creation. This type of cleaning symbiosis had to be programmed into those DNA molecules by an intelligent creator who figured how all of this would work. And this isn't the only arrangement. Um, that works like this with fish. We also have the Egyptian plover, which is a bird, who will walk right into the open mouth of a Nile crocodile. You know, the crocodile opens up his mouth and in goes the little bird. And he does the same thing, cleans out the crocodile's teeth and goes away totally unharmed. Amazing. Now, another testimony to special creation is the migratory instincts of many fish and fowl. One example of a migrating bird is the lesser white-throated warbler, which spends its summers in Germany and its winters in Africa. As the summer begins to wind down and the young birds become more and more independent, 
the parent birds will just take off and leave the little birds. And they'll, the parents will take off for Africa. Well, several weeks later, the new generation will also take off and instinctively fly thousands of miles of unfamiliar land and sea and join their parents in Africa. Now, how could they do that? They'd never been there before. They didn't know the way. Well, they have done experiments on the brains. And this is just one example. There are many birds that do this. Uh, they've done experiments. Experiments on their brains, and they have found that there is inherited knowledge of how to tell latitude and longitude, how to read the, sign, the direction by the stars, by the signs of the stars. That this is, they've, they've even raised birds totally inside with no access to the outside so that they had never seen a starlit sky at night. And they've raised the little birdies inside so they don't know what the stars look like. And then they'll find out if, if they put in a false sky, you know, just the stars like they would look like, the birds can navigate. So that, you know, remember we studied last week that the stars are for signs? Well, they're not only signs for us to navigate, but they're for the animals to navigate too. They read the stars. And they have found that in these little birds' brains is a calendar and a clock and all the necessary navigational data that they need. Here's some types of navigating, or I mean migrating. Yeah, navigating and migrating birds up here. And there are many other species of birds and animals and fish which also do the same thing. You know, you've heard of the salmon that migrate, etc. Some of them, like the Arctic tern, he's up here somewhere, travels as much as 14,000 miles each year as he migrates from pole to pole. And whales and fur seals and bats and salmon, turtles, eels, lemmings, and many other animals also migrate. And such migration skills totally baffle the evolutionist. You know, as if he didn't have enough problems already, he, he just can't explain it. They cannot present a very convincing case at all for how these remarkable abilities evolved over millions of years through chance. You see, migratory instincts are totally useless unless they are perfect. You know, you couldn't take millions of years trying to migrate because if you could only fly one-fourth of the way over the ocean or one-half of the way over the ocean or even eleven-twelfths of the way over the ocean, but you couldn't get all the way to where you were going, you would perish. You wouldn't make it. So they have to be perfect the first time. They can't have evolved over many, many millions of years. So the only logical uh, conclusion to explain this amazing phenomena is that these animals and birds and fish were carefully designed and created with these impressive skills from the very beginning by an intelligent creator. Now, as we know, birds of all kinds are arrayed with beautiful feathers. But did you know that takes a lot of work and special provision for birds to keep their feathers beautiful? You know, you've seen birds preening themselves, right? We have bird baths and we watch them doing this all the time. Well, they're not doing that because they're vain. <laughs> they're doing that to keep their feathers bright and beautiful. Birds, for example, in the heron family accumulate a coating of slime on their feathers. And so to clean away this periodic slime buildup, they actually have three patches of feathers which break down into a powder-type substance like talcum powder. 
And the herons will take this powder and apply it to their feathers. And when the powder has absorbed all the slime, they will comb it out because they have a special toe, which is shaped like a comb. And they comb it through their feathers and keep their feathers bright and beautiful and all of the slime off of them. Other birds have oil in their um, feathers, or they oil their feathers after cleaning them. And they use oil, which is produced by their own oil glands, and this oil makes their feathers waterproof. Other birds even use a pesticide to get rid of parasites in their feathers. Now, where do they get a pesticide? Do they go to Walmart? No. There are hundreds of species of birds which will sit near an anthill. They'll purposely go, if you ever see this, watch for it, they'll go and sit near an anthill, believing then that they have to protect their nest. These ants will start to march out, sneak up on that little sitting bird, and they'll release formic acid on the bird. Now, this acid is really what the bird wanted. He had no interest in the anthill, believe me. He just wanted that acid because that acid sprayed on him will drive off all the mites and the other pests from his feathers. Now, evolutionists have a very difficult time explaining all of these wonderful features without a design creator, an intelligent designer. You know what it says in Job 12, verses 7 and 8? It says this. And I want to put this picture up because I found this picture in a book and I was... Doesn't it look like he's worshiping the Lord there? All right. It says in Job 12, But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain it to you. What is Job talking about? He's saying if man wants to understand where he came from, all he has to do is ask the creatures, and they'll tell him, just like this bird. We speak of our designer. We speak of our creator. Just look at me. (laughs) Look at us. We speak of a design, a designer, an intelligent being. Well, you know. Some of us do. (laughs) Now, there are so many incredible features and aspects of fish. These, I'm just, I'm having so much fun. This is like going to the zoo today here (laughs) because I saw so many beautiful pictures of birds. Um, There are just so many, so many around us that God has created and placed on earth that it really would be impossible for me to name them all and tell you about all of their special features but he has made sure that every single part of the earth my husband lived for um he volunteered to go to vietnam back in the vietnam war and you know where they sent him see this was the key if you volunteered to go there they didn't send you there they sent him to the south pole so he spent (laughs) the vietnam war in the south pole so we have literally thousands of slides of penguins and if you ever want to come to our house and see the slideshow on penguins. <laughs> but uh, everywhere you go on the wor- in the world, and polar bears and whales and seals and all those kind of things, God has given testimony of himself. Even the desert. There are many spectacular creatures in the desert. So he's given testimony of himself in a wide variety of different species. You know what Charles Darwin said? You know, I told you I have many quotes from Charles Darwin himself. He said this. This is just incredible. He said, quote, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. End of quote. Charles Darwin. Now, why did a peacock feather make him sick? Well, why do you think? 
because he innately knew how much it screams of a designer. And it, would, it killed his whole theory. We raised peacocks, my husband and I, well, mostly my husband. Um, and they are, Matt, you've seen a peacock when the tail is open? Magnificent. I mean, all you have to do is look, show a child. And I mean, a child will say, oh, God created such beauty. They don't have a problem. We shouldn't have a problem. They're just magnificent. Or have you ever seen a golden pheasant? We used to have some of them. Oh, just beautiful. The colors just screams of a creator. Okay, well, we're never going to finish. Oh, boy. God separated the kinds. Let's um, go to part two. This is verse 21. I won't read it again. But once again, as we found to be true with the vegetation that God made on day three, he fixed both the living creatures of the waters and the winged fowl of the air so that they could only reproduce what? After their own kind. Modern genetics has demonstrated that all reproductive systems operate in the framework of the fantastic information program of the DNA molecules. Charles Darwin, we've been talking about him a little bit. I've never really given you much of a story about him. But he started out as a theology student. But he turned to materialism. Well, Charles Darwin knew absolutely nothing, as did anybody else back in those times, about the tremendously important DNA system, which lies within each and every living thing. Darwin's book, Origin of Species, was a sellout on the first day it was published, back in 1859 sold out every copy. And the reason it caused such a stir was because he suggested, quote-unquote, scientifically explainable means for modern animals and man to have come into being through natural processes without a creator. You know, man was so eager to grasp at this because he did not want to be accountable to a creator. So he sold out his book the first day. Now, his theory was known as the theory of natural selection, and it centers on the concept, you've heard this, of survival of the fittest. For example, he would have stated, Terry and Sylvia, this is for you, (laughs) he would have stated that the giraffe's long neck is the result of competition for survival. Giraffes, which had slightly longer necks, than others would have competed for the food up high more successfully than those with short necks, okay? And so, therefore, they would um, survive better, and they would produce offspring, and their offspring would also have long necks. So this is what he's saying, you know, throughout the ages that eventually the giraffes that survived produced longer and longer neck giraffes, and that's how the long neck came about. Darwin thought that natural selection, the struggle for survival, and the survival of the fittest would cause a slow, very slow, of course it takes millions and millions of years for this, irresistible evolution upward, upward, upward from one species to another, all the way from, you know, amoebas and then eventually to monkeys and then to man. However... Now, you can erase all that because natural selection is no longer accepted by scientists. Even the unsaved scientists no longer accept it as the sole mechanism responsible 
for the supposed evolution of one species to another. So they turned, remember we talk, when we talked about the work of Gregor Mendel, Gregor Mendel was, it's just so fascinating to me to, to see and study that most of the great scientists were creationists. Mendel was a creationist. He's the one who disproved natural selection by um, his studies on genetics. He's the one who discovered that we have genes, you know, not blue genes, but genes. <laughs> and some are dominant and some are recessive. And so if you have two brown-eyed parents, they'll probably produce brown-eyed kids, but not necessarily because they might have received a, the recessive blue, gene, blue genes. Yeah, blue genes. <laughs> well, for example, Frank and I both have dark eyes, right? But we have two blue-eyed children. You're going to see one of them in a little while because she's going to come sing. She's got blue eyes. And some people said, where in the world did she come from? Well, my mother has blue eyes and his mother has blue eyes, so those genes got together, so she's a blue and a blue, you know, and therefore she has blue eyes. You know all that. You studied that. Well, that's the work of Gregor Mendel and um, the study of the genetics and heredity, and it disproved natural selection. Natural selection, you see, works to prevent a species from deteriorating and from um, retaining negative characteristics, but it has nothing to do, nothing at all to do with the arrival of new types of species. In other words, natural selection, the sole function is to prevent a species from going downwards, but it has nothing to do with the species evolving a new, like a new wing, or I mean a, a wing that it never had before or changing a scale to a wing, or whatever. It's a matter of survival, not a matter of arrival. But you can read all about that in your notes. In fact, you know what? Darwin himself became convinced that natural selection, or he was at least became very uncertain that it was a cause for evolution. And, no, he did become convinced because he abandoned it totally by the sixth edition of his book, Origin of the Species. So he did abandon it. It's too bad... People don't know that because many people still believe it. Creationists are perfectly justified in believing that the genetic laws stabilize the basic kinds of all living creatures within their boundaries. That not only agrees with what the scripture states over and over again after his kind, but it has no problem with the evidence in the present fossil record either because the fossil record has never yet once produced a single missing link between any species. There's no missing link between, um, I don't even know the order, but between reptiles and birds, for example. There are no missing links, authentic missing links, between monkeys and man. We'll talk about that when we get back probably from our Christmas break. All the missing links, the Neanderthal man, the Peking man, all of them, I can tell you what they really were, all right? There are no authentic missing links. So this said, smile, Darwin, you were wrong. You know what? I looked at that picture in my bird book. That is a picture of a chin-strap penguin. <laughs> and I thought, God has a wonderful sense of humor, doesn't he? To create something like that? Isn't that neat? Well, let's listen one more time to some of Darwin's own words about his theory. This is Darwin speaking, all right? Quote, but as by this theory, innumerable transitional forms must have existed. In other words, there should be all kinds of transitional forms from one species to another. 
Why then do we not find them embedded in countless numbers in the crust of the earth? That's his quote himself. Another thing he wondered about, and I have this quote somewhere in your notes, is why don't we see all around us animals in transition? Why don't we see half monkey, half men type creatures? Why don't we see half reptile, half bird type creatures? Because if evolution is true, things would still be evolving. And he wondered about that as well. Well, we know that there are no fossil transitions between species for one very simple reason. It would be kind of weird to see things like that around, wouldn't it? One simple reason. It's because God programmed each species to be fixed within its own kind, and that simply is the way it is, the way it always has been, and the way it always will be. God saw the fish and the fowl, that they were good, verse 21. Um, He saw that they fulfilled their purpose, their function. What was their function? What's the purpose for the fish and the fowl? Well, for one thing, they populate and give life to God's creation. I'm skipping things because I'm running out of uh, time. In your notes, I talk about the fact that Archaeopteryx, is a bird that they thought, a dinosaur kind of a bird, that they thought was a transition between reptiles and birds. And you might hear about this from evolutionists. It has been disproved, okay? He was totally a bird. That's in your notes. And then I just um, wanted to show you some more pictures. That's a puffin. Isn't he cute? I just wanted to show you some of God's amazing creatures. Those are seals in the water. Um, So one of his purposes, why they are good, is because they populate and give life to his creation both in the waters and the sky. And why did he create the earth in the first place? To be populated, to be inhabited. Secondly, the living creatures of day five would serve God's purpose in carrying on the um, reproduction of the food chain. They are very important for us to be alive here because without animals, the, the the food chain would not keep on going. Now, another purpose for the living creatures of day five was to give variety and beauty to this earth. Do they do that? Look, now here's some sea kind of just tiny little microscopic things. Does God have infinite creative skills? These are sea plankton or something. I just put a bunch of them on a picture to show you how beautiful. Look at that. Isn't that gorgeous? And I wish you could see these things in color because they're fantastic. This is a clownfish who hides them in, in a sea anemone. Um, um, what's it called? No, it's not coral. Anyway, I can't think of the word. God, here's a unique feature. Oh, did I mention the last thing? They would. The last thing is that they would provide companionship for man. Can you imagine what this world would be like without our fishy, our scaly, and our feathery friends? I mean, think about it. You would never again be able to have a chicken biscuit. (laughs) Forget turkey and dressing on Thanksgiving. Scrambled eggs? No. I was thinking about all the things. Dairy products? You could never have a bowl of ice cream. You could never have a cheese pizza. I'm I'm only thinking food, aren't I? (laughs) But there are a lot of foods that we get from our little friends. We could never have a shrimp cocktail. We could never have a broiled flounder. We could never have 
Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, but then they also provide us with companionship. Can, I mean, can you imagine not seeing birds and ducks and geese in the sky and, and watching them and seeing a beautiful butterfly? Because probably flying insects were created on day five, too. Never seeing a beautiful butterfly fluttering around or a hummingbird humming around, hovering over some beautiful flower. Can you just imagine? And if there were no sea creatures in the waters and the waters were just totally empty, well, for one thing, we couldn't survive because we need all of them for ourselves as well. And then the final thing is he blessed them. And this is an element, a new element, which is added to God's work. He not only looked at his work and declared that it was good, but he, he pronounced a blessing on the creatures. And um, this shows just that they are also his objects of care and concern. Didn't the Lord say that he even knows when a sparrow falls to the ground? He does. And it says elsewhere, the Lord said uh, that he continually provides for their needs. Needs, He said, behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And then in his blessing, he also commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and to enjoy all that he had made for them by way of the waters and the skies. And, of course, the vegetation, which he had created on day three. And then we close with the completion of the creation of the fish and fowl in verse 23, where it says, And the evening and the morning were the the fifth day. Another 24-hour period of time had passed. God had covered the skies, and he had filled the waters of the entire earth with a great variety of living creatures of every size, every shape, every color, every diversity, every kind of pattern, every kind of motion, structure, habit, instinct, and beauty imaginable. No limit to what he could create. And yet, you know what? He hadn't even yet hardly begun because on day six, what did he do? He created all the land creatures. And you talk about variety there, again, whoa. And he also, on the latter part of, of verse, uh, um, the sixth day, he created man. And again, talk about variety, just look around. <laughs> so, isn't God wonderful? Isn't he wonderful? I mean, this, is, this has just been a quick little survey. I hope the pictures help to reinforce his wonder to you. But let's close in prayer. Father... We thank you that, again, in conclusion, we can see how limitless your creativity is and how limitless your power is and your intelligence. You are definitely our all-wise creator. And we just can't thank you enough that you loved us so much that you set about making this ideal and perfectly beautiful home to place us in. And we have to remember that we're even living in a cursed world, we can't hardly imagine what it must have been like when all creatures were herbivores and they didn't eat any meat and everything lived in peace with one another and there were no weeds and no thorns. It must have just been magnificent. But you did all this just so you could enjoy our fellowship. 
And of course, Father, we know that you knew what would happen and that we would break our fellowship with you. So you, even before the foundation of the world, planned a way to bring us back into fellowship. You took upon yourself in the person of your son a human body so that you could satisfy your own holy and just requirement of death in payment for sin. We know that death had to be won by one who was perfectly sinless and only Christ could qualify, which he did. And so, Father, now the only obstacle to man's returned fellowship with you, our divine creator, is to accept by faith Christ's payment for sin on our behalf. And, Father, my closing wish is that every single one who hears my voice in this room or whenever, by tape, cassette, however, that they would accept Christ's payment on their behalf and they would acknowledge that things did not come about by spontaneous generation, but by a divine, omnipotent, all-loving creator who even died for him or her. Father, we love you. We pray that you would now bless us through the singing of these two fine young girls and give us a great week. Help us to be witnesses for you, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Alicia and Connie, this is, come on up. This is um, Alicia Priest. A lot of you go to Grace know Alicia. She's sung for us before. And speaking of after its own kind, here comes my after its own kind blue-eyed Connie. And they are going to, Connie is the curly one, Alicia is the straight-haired one. (laughs) And they're going to sing for us. Here's the microphones right here.
Sylvie. 